This is our podcast for um, June um, of 2020. It's actually a re-working um, of our podcast done actually officially in, um, in May. And our guest is, uh, and we're very, very happy to have Dr. Nicholas Verne the new chair of the Department of Medicine, University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center in Memphis. And we chose Dr. Verne because uh, it's Irritable Bowel Disease Month officially in April. And uh, we're also now uh, facing the pandemic effects of COVID-19 on, on medical schools. And as chair of medicine, Dr. Verne is in the middle of all that. Uh, just a brief snapshot of uh, Nick's background. Uh, I first met Nick uh, when he was a GI fellow. He, uh, he is a gator uh, overall, despite that New York uh, background. That's uh, right. <laughs> and I'm sure he claims it on certain Saturday afternoon football games. But um, Nick went uh, from there to, um, in the GI world, to end up... Uh, as chief of GI in Galveston, um, and developed develop a very nice division there before moving on as chair of, uh, of GI at Ohio State, and then to Tulane as uh, Department of Medicine chair for the past five years, holding the Harry Greenberg uh, Chair of Internal Medicine uh, title. And as I said, recently has uh, joined as chair at University of Tennessee, Memphis. Nick has had a long interest in um, irritable bowel syndrome and, and his research on that area, therefore, is very relevant to the fact that we are recognizing that month in, in April, the fact that it affects 15% of the world. Uh, probably the biggest and commonest problem we see every day in GI, Nick, in our clinics, 75% of women. So let's, let's just get a snapshot of irritable bowel to start off our podcast. You've worked in the areas of permeability, epigenetic regulation of intraneural pathways. Um, Want to give us a little snapshot of where you think your research is going and what, what may be new or hot in your, in your irritable bowel world right now? Yeah, well, thank you. And I uh appreciate the uh, invitation to participate with you this afternoon. Um, I think that we've made a lot of progress in functional bowel disorders for probably in the last five or 10 years. Um, I think one of the things that's probably uh, first and foremost is that we now realize, you know, that uh, we, this is a very, these are very heterogeneous uh, disorders. Um, certainly the pathophysiologies are different. And that is important because it will focus how we treat these patients. So I think that uh, for irritable bowel, as we are in our lab, we're looking at specific um, uh, underlying uh, pathophysiologies. We've been focusing on post-infectious IBS. As we know, about 15 to 20% of patients who have an enteric infection go on to develop post-infectious IBS. And, and it's interesting that these patients do behave differently than those that have uh, IBS due to maybe stress or some other type of uh, other related entity. 
Uh, we are particularly interested in the neuroplasticity that's occurring in the enteric neurons in the gut and how that changes some of the signaling that's occurring um, in the various receptors on the enteric neurons. I think this becomes really important as we look forward the next five or 10 years of as we can better define the pathophysiology and focus our therapies using kind of more of a personalized medicine approach uh, for irritable bowel rather than one therapy fits all. Yeah, Nico, it's, it's interesting uh, as you talk about post-infectious IBS, viral gastroenteritis, viral uh, involvement of the colon, uh, bacterial, Campylobacter jejuni has gotten a lot of press on this area. I've often wondered, and we all get these food poisonings every month or more, uh, and yet, predictably, it's 75% of patients in our office are women. And so you may wonder, is there something about the brain-gut structure, uh, the, the reaction to stress in the female GI tract, uh, assuming we're all equally exposed to bacteria and viruses every day, uh, why would post-infectious gastroenteritis lead to maybe IBS-type symptoms in predominantly females? Always, that's always been an uh, interesting component. We all focus on the brain and the gut. Stress is important. Uh, do you think somehow there's some other susceptible network that makes the female brain-gut connection more vulnerable? Yeah, but that's a really good question. And obviously, I think that we're still not sure about that. I bet we have had, you know, I, th I think certainly um, there may be differences in the brain-gut interaction, um, but there has been some good work uh, done looking at uh, estrogen receptors in the gut and how they may play a role of accentuating some of these responses. Um, you know, and I think it also goes back, we look at Doug Grossman's householder survey, you know, done many, many years ago. It still holds true that, you know, women, I think, are more likely to report symptoms, more likely to seek healthcare symptoms. So I think the social cultural certainly has a role in that. Um, I think there's probably several different uh, things that could explain that uh, difference for sure. Segwaying from there, I guess, into another potential post-infectious sequelae that we're going to see is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there has been data showing the virus in stool, even data showing it may stay in stool longer than even in the upper respiratory tract. And one could speculate, perhaps, that we're going to see, um, as a sequel to this pandemic, a flurry of activity in the gut, whether it's post-infectious IBS or in my area, I may be looking more in the upper gut at post-infectious gastroparesis viral, often being blamed sometimes without much data. Um, do you have any speculation that we may be sitting on another surge of serious gut uh, dysfunction uh, when the dust settles here? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if we go back and look at the data that we've seen with post-viral, such as influenza, you know, it's well known. And I think that your group did that very, very nice study many years ago. I think it was in the Red Journal looking at, if you look at idiopathic gastroparesis, um, a good portion of those are post-viral. 
And I think that, um, and I think we've all had patients over the years who have had the flu or some type of viral infection that go on to develop chronic gastrointestinal motility disorders. Um, I think that um, we may see that again, it's a little bit too early to tell. Um, you know, luckily for the gut, it doesn't primarily attack the gut, but certainly we know that there's involvement. There are GI symptoms, uh, probably 15 to 25%. Um, so I think that, yeah, we probably will see, you know, but how much, I'm not really sure. I would anticipate it'll probably mirror the influenza a little bit uh, when we ultimately, this shakes out, but, um, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah, I've seen I had a couple of patients call me with irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea dominant, who now claim they're you know they're much much worse, and we've had to try to uh, see them and help them, but um, or maybe virtually help them initially until they've uh, finally quarantined. But that's good speculation, Nick. Let me work from there um, into your other life as chairman of medicine, awaiting July one when. We see a recycling of our medical residents, our medical students, and life begins again for us, GI fellows included. Uh, what are you predicting we'll be doing here in July uh, versus uh, years gone by when everything just started up as normal? What, what changes as chair do you predict in your department? Well, you know, I think like a lot of places currently, we are in phase two for endoscopy and procedures. We're still not to full speed yet. Um, and I think that with the testing beforehand and being careful with our protective uh, equipment, personal protective equipment, I think that uh, as, as you know, new fellows coming in certainly are going to have to um, learn that and be more here. And I kind of think it's a little bit like what we did back in training in the uh, late 80s when we had the HIV. You know, we, you know, had to be very careful with gowning, gloving. And um, so I think it is going to have some impact. You know, there is some concern about nationally, will the, we have enough procedures with our fellows? I mean, I think that as we move through this and things ramp back up, uh, that should be okay. But um, but on the positive side, I think probably using masks and being more careful, you know, may decrease the transmission of other diseases that we may get as endoscopists that uh, we haven't been careful enough doing, you know, in the last several decades. So. And how about your prediction about uh, teaching our students and residents? Are we going to see a lot more uh, lectures done? Uh, Webex and virtually, we may not be seeing as many people hands-on as we used to. Do you think it's uh, going to be restrictive as far as our students um, having a full experience in their surgery and medical clerkships, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think that's very true because a lot of our lectures and our grand rounds are still uh, via, you know, uh, Zoom because we can't have enough people in the same room. Uh, even I think the other thing that we have to think about is our interviews for me medicine residents and fellows. We've had multiple discussions, as is other nationally, uh, if we do those via Zoom and not have them come. I think that's going to affect and how do we um, deal with that. So I think that um, all those are really good, you know, but we're trying to look on the bright side. You know, if we if you think about having our 
lectures now via Zoom, it opens the opportunity of bringing national or even international experts in and giving a talk, you know, talk. I mean, we could have done that before, but now this kind of really uh, pushes the envelope for that. So we're going to take advantage of this and reach out to some national thought leaders uh, to come and give our grand rounds. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're hoping we can entice you to sometime and talk to us about gastroparesis. So I think it's, it'll be an opportunity also. That's very good. Uh, it's a, a positive thought, Nick, and uh, probably a very good uh, way to start to wind down our, our podcast. You know, um, I um, just saw a patient this morning who has a condition called rumination syndrome, which is a brain-gut obvious connection um, and a way of causing premature vomiting after meals. And obviously you and I have evolved uh, from perhaps GI fellowships where we're basic to this concept that we're all sort of GI neurologists, as it were, um, and part of our life is being in the brain-gut world. Um, do you have any final thoughts coming in or finishing up here about uh, how we focus on the brain and the gut, uh, how we try to understand that how some patients present with symptoms, others live in symbiosis with the irritable bowel, with their other symptoms, and how the brain-gut sort of begins to exacerbate uh, your tolerance or your stoicism and wears you down and you present with symptoms that some people seem to live with. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we're fortunate today in 2020 that we've had a lot of, you know, a better understanding of the brain gut, you know, vis-a-vis -vis neuroimaging studies by Emron Mayer's group. Uh, and I think also now looking at uh, the, the microbiome and how that may uh, play a role in the brain-gut uh, access. Um, I think going forward, you know, as we look at some of the new literature and trials, I think using um, some psychological um, treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, I think as we, as I mentioned earlier about having better phenotypic expression of uh, IBS subgroups, there may be a group that responds very well to cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so I think going forward, that may be one avenue to treat this, the patients who have this exacerbation of brain gut access. Clearly they're there. Um, so I think the future is very really bright. I think we're, we're looking more broadly than we did before, which I think is really good overall for the field. Well, Dr. Vern, I want to say you've, uh, you've sort of had a trial by fire as the incoming chairman down there at Memphis and, uh, Sounds like you've stood the test well. You're very optimistic and uh, the department's under great leadership. Uh, I think the AFMR is very grateful for your time here on our podcast. I hope you promote and support American Federation for uh, research, medical research uh, in your department and your fellows and residents and students. We certainly think that's the sort of uh, prep school for academic life uh, as you've uh, example, didn't I have been one of those recipients as well? So on behalf of, uh, of the American Federation of Medical Research and the Journal of Investigative Medicine, of which I'm editor-in-chief, I want to thank you, Nick, for this time. Very informative. And uh, 
I wish you the very best in your chairmanship and um, look forward to seeing uh, uh, some of these uh, research uh, contributions that you continue to make in irritable bowel syndrome. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Nick. Thanks. Good afternoon.